Luke chapter 3 is where we will be this morning. The Gospel of Luke chapter 3, as we consider more of this intriguing character referred to as John the Baptist. I'm going to read from verse 7 all the way down through verse 20. I'll be reading here from the New King James Version. Dr. Luke records for us these words, beginning in verse 7 of Luke chapter 3. Then he, referring to John the Baptist, said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics... Let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the weed into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added to this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. Let us pray together. Our Father and our God, once more we gather together, even as we confessed earlier in our question and answer time, as a people called out as Christians from the world together to live set apart, holy lives, for even as he who is holy, has called us to be holy, so ought we to be holy in all of our conduct. And so I pray that even as we gather around together to look at your word and see the preaching of this prophet who was sent to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, that you would challenge our hearts through his preaching and that our hearts would be transformed, not because of my words, but because of the word of God. And we pray all of this in the Messiah whom he prepared for in his name. Amen. I remember as a kid, a lot of times getting in trouble 
and feeling a sense of sorrow for being in trouble. But I don't necessarily know that I was always truly repentant for what I had done. There were many times, I, I have two younger brothers and two younger sisters. My two brothers are closest in age to me. And we did everything together. We played together, we sang together, we fought together. And frequently our battles were quite intense at times and we would get in trouble for one reason or another, doing something to one of our siblings. Most of the time, I won't speak for them, but I'll speak for me, most of the time I'm not entirely certain that I was sorry about what I had done to my brother. On one occasion, we had just finished watching a John Wayne movie. I don't remember what it was. But my brothers and I decided to go outside and play like cowboys, basically. And in this particular John Wayne movie, there was this big fist fight scene. And so my brothers and I decided we were going to kind of try to mimic that same scene. And it turns out, my mind's eye is fuzzy on this. My brother may remember this more clearly and have a very distinct opinion on this, but I don't necessarily know that I intentionally hit him in the face, but I hit him well. I mean, it was like the, it was the classic John Wayne. I wound up, I hit him, and he was down for the count, and I got in trouble for that. I don't know that I was necessarily sorry that I had done that. I was just more sorry that he decided to cry and go tell mom. There is a sense in which I think lots of us can identify with that even as adults, as teenagers, and certainly as children, where we're not necessarily sorry for doing what we know was wrong. We're more sorry that we got caught, or we're more sorry for the consequences of what happened, but we're not necessarily truly sorry about what we did. I think this is at the heart of what John is coming to when he is sent to preach the message that would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. He's going to the heart of God's people. John, this very strange man who we read in our scripture reading from Mark chapter 1 as wearing camel's hair. He's eating locusts and wild honey. In fact, every time I read that, I always think about when my brothers and I, my parents gave us BB guns, and we lived out in the country, so we would go into this field, and it was just littered with with locusts and things like that. And so we would take our BB guns and we'd like pump it as much as we possibly could and we would be trying to hit those, those little locusts, grasshoppers. I remember just looking at those and thinking, this is what he ate? Like, that's disgusting. Most people are going to look at this guy and say, he's a very odd-looking fella. But the message he was sent to preach was the message the people of Israel needed to hear. And frankly, it's the message every person in every age needs to hear. Because like John's day, our day is filled with people who think they're okay. Like John's day, there are crowds gathered together to listen to somebody preach who don't think they need the preaching. Like John's day, there are people who are appealing to things like their baptism or their parents' Christian faith as their basis for their standing before God. And John was sent to proclaim a message to those people that would shake the foundation of that belief. And his preaching 2,000 years ago 
is as apropos then as it is now. Where we have people who need to understand what true repentance is. Because it's more than just feeling sorry. It's more than just saying, oops, I'll try to do better next time. True repentance is a recognition of who you are in sight of God. And that is what John was sent to proclaim. He was a very odd fellow. But he was a man consumed on fire to prepare the way for the Messiah. And that's really what the question is that we're answering in our text today. John was sent to prepare the way. We read that already in verse 4 and 5 and 6 of of chapter 3 here in Luke. He is sent to prepare the way of the Lord, to make his path straight. But what does that mean? He's quoting from Isaiah 40. But what what does Luke mean when he's quoting this prophecy about John? What does it mean that John is preparing the way of the Lord? And that is exactly what Luke records next in verses 7 through 20, how John prepared the way of the Lord. And ultimately, he's preparing the way of the Lord by proclaiming what true repentance looks like. And in our text before us, I believe we see that from John's message, there's really four principles or four marks of what true repentance is from his preaching. So really, my sermon's not original. I'm just preaching John's sermon. But these are the points that John gave back then, 2,000 years ago, and these are the points I think he's trying to get across to us today. That true repentance is characterized by four things, certainly more than that, but the four that we can look at from John. And the first one is this, that true repentance recognizes the impending judgment. True repentance recognizes the impending judgment. Now, before I even get into that, we have to ask the question, what does repentance even mean? If somebody were to ask you, give me the Oxford definition of what is repentance, what would your answer be? Well, repentance, I believe, according to Scripture, is an agreement with God about who you are. When God looks at humanity, a lot of times the world wants to hear the message that God looks at humanity and he sees just these lovey-dovey creatures that he just cannot help but want to cuddle and have close to him. And there is a sense in which God demonstrates love, and God so loved the world, and that God loves the sinner and hates the sin. There is that sense, but there is something more to that that nobody wants to acknowledge because we want the love aspect. When God gives judgment on sin, he doesn't throw the sin into hell and to the lake of fire. He throws the sinner. There are verses in the Bible that you cannot come away from and say, well, we just don't like that one, so we won't talk about that one. Verses such as, God is angry with the wicked. These are realities, I think, that help us understand who we are. We have a high view of ourselves, typically, as humans. We tend to think that we're basically good. In fact, when I was teaching Bible class a couple years ago in our Christian school, there was this article I came across in which the person was suggesting that humans are born basically good. 
And he gave the illustration of how that there are people who have this inclination, even at a young, childlike age, where if you see an infant on a chair that just happened to be laying on a chair, poor parenting technique, but the, the child is on the chair about to roll over, that your basic innate response would be to save and rescue that child. A basic response of goodness. And this person continued to give illustration after illustration of what he believed to be a demonstration that from birth, little infants are born good. And that really, the problem with us is that our society conditions people into looking at a person and saying that even though we understand that we have this innate goodness that we naturally want to do, our society is filled with people that essentially creates evil within them so that they will make poor choices, so that they will make choices that are more self-centered instead of helping other people. And their solution to mankind's problem is not necessarily more religion or to convince people that they're bad and that they need a savior, but instead that they need to fix society and culture so that we can take this collective goodness and create good. Is that the view of humanity that God has? Certainly not. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Mankind is a rebel before God because even though they knew God, they did not glorify God. And the wages of our sin is death. There is no excuse for us to give before God. We cannot say, I didn't know I was that bad. We have to understand ourselves in light of who God says we are. So repentance then is saying, I agree with you, God. I see Rodney King and I see a rebel who doesn't want God. And repentance says, I agree with you that I'm bad and that that's bad and I need to change. And repentance then is turning around away from what I was to who God can make me to become. John's day saw people who believed they were innately good. They did not necessarily see the impending judgment that was coming towards them. Our sin requires at the hands of a holy God, holy justice. And that justice is right and good and we have no excuse before God when we stand before him for it. And I heard one preacher say once that when people are sent to hell because they rejected Jesus Christ, they know that their sentence was just and right. They aren't going there kicking and screaming and saying, this is not fair, because they know it is. Repentance says, I know there's a judgment. And why is there a judgment coming? Because I am who God says I am. I am a sinner. I need to repent. I need to turn. I need to run away from what I hold dear. And frankly, what the Bible says about sin is scary to me because it says we want it. We want the sinner. And nothing could have exemplified this more than when Jesus is standing before the crowd of people crying, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate says, fine, here's what. You guys have this, this custom that we release one person for you uh, at the Passover. So do you want us to release Jesus, whom I've told you repeatedly is innocent, 
Or do you want me to release to you Barabbas, who's a murderer and a robber? His rap sheet is so long. Clearly, even our society today would say this guy's a bad dude. And rather than choosing the holy, righteous, second person of the Godhead, God's own people, the Jewish nation, whom he had chosen for himself, chose a murderer and a robber. Why? Because that guy was more like them than the innocent son of God. They wanted what was more like them than the one who was utterly different. There is an impending judgment, and it is because God is a righteous, holy one. And when John starts preaching, he looks at people And imagine if I had started my sermon by pointing at every one of you and said, you brood of vipers. Do you think that that's going to earn any kind of rapport with my audience if I started out that way? Probably not. But that's what John does. Here's the people. He's at the water. He's baptizing people for the remission of sins or basically on the basis of the fact that they're repenting of their sins. And these people are coming to him and he says to him, you brood of vipers. You deceitful people. Who warned you to flee from what? The wrath to come. John is not preaching and saying, hey, everybody, come on in. Hey, I know that there's a lot of different religions in the world. I know that all of us have our different opinions on things. But hey, let's just set all that aside. Let's come together. And let's just just feel the love, man. That's not what John does. He says, I don't care what you think. You are a deceitful group of people. You come here wanting to give the external view of religion. You want to come to me. You want to be baptized in the Jordan, a very popular place, a very public place where everybody is. You want me to baptize you, and then you want to walk away thinking that you've done your religious duty, and in the sight of God, you're all that and a bag of chips. But John says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You guys don't want to repent of anything because you don't think you have anything you need to repent of. You want to give the external show of religion and that's it. So what should you do instead, according to John? Well, if there is an impending judgment, a wrath that is to come, then true repentance not only recognizes that impending judgment, but it will demonstrate results. Number two, true repentance will demonstrate results. What does that mean? Here's what John says in verse 8. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. You guys are coming to me and you're saying, we're basically good. We just want to do this religious thing. We want to do this this act that's going to demonstrate to everybody that we are good Jews. But what you need to do is demonstrate a true heart change. That's John's point. Your heart is no different. You have washed the outsides, but like in the words of Jesus, you've become nothing but painted tombs. You are a sinner in the sight of God, and the only way you can truly, truly be viewed in the eyes of God as one who is humble and repented is if you demonstrate that true change. John is not saying, go do stuff so that you will repent. That's not not what he's saying. And that's not what any good understanding of Scripture and any preacher who's preaching from Scripture is saying. We're not saying clean up your life and that'll demonstrate then that you're truly repentant. 
John is saying the problem here is not with your external conformity to the religious expectations of your society. The problem here is fundamentally inside of you. Cleaning the outside with religious external things is going to do nothing. Your heart has got to change first. And when your heart changed, there will be a change in you. There will be results. You will not continue doing what you were doing. There has to be true demonstration of your agreement with God about who you are and your change of mind from your sin to clinging to God. And John actually gives examples to people because, listen, they're hearing what he's saying. It's not like they're wondering, scratching their heads, saying, what is he talking about? What? No, they understand exactly what he's saying because in verse 10, the people ask him, what shall we do? How can we demonstrate this change? Can you help me understand what I'm doing wrong? Help me see my sin. And that's what a good man of God will do, is not only recognize, first of all, his own sin. John understands that. He's about to say that. But he helps other people understand what sin looks like and how a changed life will appear. So, for example, in verse 11, when he has those people ask him, what shall we do? He says to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none, and he who has food, let him do likewise. Demonstrate generosity. Demonstrate an other focus. Somebody who's, you're not focusing on yourself, but you're looking on the things of others, in the words of the Apostle Paul. Demonstrate a humility. Something that isn't going to be self-word motivated and focused. Demonstrate that. You see somebody who's lacking clothes. You've got two. Do you need two? Help this guy out who doesn't have any. You see this person who doesn't have any food. You have plenty of food. Share with him. That's what a true heart change will do. It's not John saying, hey, go give your clothes to that guy, and you go give your food to that guy, and then you're truly repentant. No, no, no. He's saying your heart must change, and here's how you'll know it's changed. When you immediately leave your focus from yourself to focusing on other people you will know there's a demonstration of your heart change. Another group asked him a question. The tax collectors, the lowest, most despised group in society, comes to him. And all the Jewish people are probably backing away because those tax collectors who were taxing the Jews were also Jews. So they were considered traitors in the eyes of true ethnic Jews. They saw a Jewish tax collector who was a traitor because now he's working for the government of the Roman Empire. And he's like every other tax collector, where this isn't in the age of the internet where you can go back and verify numbers and things for yourself. You have to take his word for it that that's how much you owe. And everybody knew tax collectors were cheating people. So that I can get a little pocket change for myself, I'm going to charge Z. So then I'll turn an X to the Roman government, but I'm going to pocket the rest of that for me. They were cheaters and swindlers, and when they come to John, these people, in the eyes of the Jewish nation, were the people who truly needed to repent. So those tax collectors come to John. They say, teacher, what should we do? And he says to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Be honest. True repentance will demonstrate itself in honesty. You will speak the truth. You won't twist it. You'll speak the truth. 
You won't hide it. You'll speak the truth. True repentance says, look, I know who I am before the sight of God. I'm a miserable, filthy wretch of a sinner. I don't deserve the kindness of God. But you know what? I'm going to be honest about that. I don't deserve the grace and kindness of God. And here, when I understand that, I'm going to take that honesty before God when I agree with him and I say, yes, I am a sinner. I need to be saved. I'll turn around and say, look, I mistreated you. I wasn't honest with you. Here's the truth. John says true repentance will be honest. But then in verse, 13, uh, verse 14, there were some soldiers who came to him. These aren't Roman soldiers. These are Jewish soldiers. These Jewish soldiers come up to him and say, what shall we do? And here's what he says to them. Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. In the Jewish eyes, the soldiers of the Jewish nation often got a little pumped up. We're a little, they were proud. I, I'm in a position of authority. You have to listen to me. And they were also, because of that pompousness, that very self-centered attitude, believed they were underpaid because they were deserving of more. John says, true humility, true repentance is going to demonstrate itself in kindness to other people. Be gentle. Be kind. So true repentance will demonstrate results. And John gives examples to his people. This is John saying, here are some examples of what this could look like in your life. A true changed heart will manifest itself in a changed character. Everybody knew what the tax collectors were like. And And John says, if you are truly repentant, if your heart has truly changed, here's what it'll look like. Everybody knew what the soldiers in the Jewish nation were like. And so John says, if your heart is truly changed, here's what that might look like. We are no different. We do not look at ourselves often in the way that God looks at ourselves. We are more inclined to give ourselves a pass, and we think God's the same way. We think often that when we stand before God, that the things that we know we did wrong, but just thought, eh, it's not that big of a deal. We think God will treat us in the same way. But God will not negotiate his holiness. And true demonstration of repentance will manifest itself somehow. Are we going to be perfect as Christians? Certainly not. Peter, I am so thankful for Peter because I identify more with Peter than I do with any of the other apostles. I have no idea how many times I've been so thankful that poor Peter had to have his mistakes plastered on every Bible around the world. Because I identify with his failures. And I understand the sorrow, and you probably do too, the sorrow you feel when, when you fail God, when you fail in your walk with him. When Peter denies Jesus three times, one of the greatest acts of sin you could think of, I mean, any person who denies the gospel is denying Jesus. They're doing what Peter did. Peter did it three times. And he turns and he sees Jesus. Look at him. And I cannot imagine the look that was in the eyes of Jesus. And Peter didn't say, whoops, my bad, Jesus. 
Peter didn't say, hey, it's not a big deal. I was just doing a white lie. You know how I really feel. Peter saw the Savior that he denied three times. Says he turned and he wept bitterly. There could be no greater sense of guilt and shame that a human can feel than what Peter felt in that moment. As Christians, we're going to fail. Peter, even after he's restored by Jesus, what does he end up doing? He ends up getting scared about what the Jews are going to think of him. And so rather than going and eating food with the Gentiles, what does he do? He kind of shuns the Gentiles and goes and spends time with the Jews and kind of ignores them. When clearly Jesus had said, the gospel is for all nations, all peoples, not just the Jews, it's for the Gentiles too. But Peter, he failed again. Did that mean he wasn't a Christian or a follower of God? Certainly not. It just, needed, it just meant he needed to repent. And what does Paul do? A public sin like Peter's required a public confrontation. So Paul says, Peter, what are you doing, man? These are your brothers and sisters too. You can't just ignore them. In the same way, we as Christians cannot be content with where we are spiritually. We cannot say, oh, I'm good. It's all right. I'm very happy with where I'm at. Each day should be a battle and a wrestling with who you once were, but now who you can be because of Jesus. So true repentance, it recognizes there's a judgment coming, and that judgment from God for my sin is right and just. I deserve it. It understands that when I truly repent, there will be results. But number three, it necessarily includes humility. It necessarily includes humility. Here's what John says. He says, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up to Abra- children to Abraham from these stones. Imagine being compared to stones. The Jewish people thought that they were the greatest nation. Does that sound familiar? They thought they were the greatest nation. They were chosen by God. They were called out of the promised land. They saw the mighty works of God in the parting of the Red Sea, manna coming from heaven, quail every morning, the great Davidic kingdom, the glories of Solomon's kingdom and wisdom. All of these things that they had seen God do repeatedly for them over and over again, and they started to get this complex where they thought that they were the greatest in all the land. And when John comes to them and says, you need to repent, what's the first thing they do? It's not falling flat on their their face and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's, who are you, man? We're the children of Abraham. What do we have to repent of? We are God's people. Yeah, maybe we haven't been great at following God all the time, but hey, we are God's people. And immediately they start appealing to some other dude's righteousness and some ancestry, assuming that somehow that makes them not necessarily needing any kind of repentance. And John says, you think, you think that just because you've got a granddad that God blessed, that means that you're okay in the sight of God? 
and you think somehow that God needs you? Let me tell you just how insignificant you are when it comes to God needing anything. God could literally take that stone and say, I want that to be my kid, and turn it into his children and create a new nation for himself if he wanted to. You think God needs you? The sovereign of the universe who spoke his words and something came out of nothing does not need anything. God never gets hungry. God never gets thirsty. In eternity past, God had a relationship within the triune Godhead between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It's not like God was lonely and said, you know what, I got to make for myself something because this is just boring. The triune God needs nothing. And certainly, if you think that somehow he needs you, you're misunderstanding who he is and you're misunderstanding who you are. You could be someone that could be compared to a rock. God in mercy and kindness made you a part of his people. It's not because he needed you. It's not because there was some inherent worth with you. It's because God, in graciousness and kindness, with joy and love, made his people for himself so that he could take pleasure in them and they could take pleasure in him. And when we get to heaven one day, like Lorene is enjoying right now, we're not going to be getting there and thinking, wow, God got something when he got me. We're not going to be getting there and thinking, boy, he did this for me because I'm amazing. We're going to get there and be overwhelmed by a sense of unworthiness. We're going to be like Isaiah when we see the transcendent, majestic, holy God, the train of whose robe fills the temple. We're going to fall on our face and we're going to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We're going to see the lamb slain from the foundation of the world and we're going to say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. It will not be about us. It will be about him. And true repentance necessarily includes humility. You cannot say, I have repented and love yourself supremely. You cannot say, I have repented, truly repented, and serve yourself. You have to say, my focus is exactly what Jesus said when he said, what is the summary of the law? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's others-focused. That necessarily includes humility. And in a society such as ours, and as a society such as John's day, where the society typically tends to think that we are great, that's very countercultural. Very. It's not what the society expects from us. Which is why John's message was truly confrontational for his society. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. And frankly, I'm imagining that there are people in this room who don't want to hear what he has to say either. But the reality is, is we were created to love and know and enjoy God forever. 
But if God says that I am a sinner and I need to be saved from my sins and I must truly repent, I have to agree with him. I must. And if I am a sinner and I need to repent, but I can't do it on my own, then what must I do? And this is John's point. Number four, true repentance looks towards Jesus. John didn't say, shape up your life, get better, and then you'll have truly repented. He doesn't say, clean up your life, and then God will accept you. The whole point of John's message was to show each and every person standing before him at the river that day that there was nothing they could do that would ultimately please God. He said, here's what true repentance will look like. It'll look like somebody who is clothed in humility, who recognizes his, his justice before God when it comes to what he deserves for his sin, and he understands that true repentance is going to manifest itself with results. There will be a changed life, a changed heart. But the problem was, they couldn't. They couldn't. And we can't either. I could sit here and I could tell each and every one of you in this room, clean up your life. And then God will be happy with you. Go to church. Sit in the pew every Sunday. Go get baptized. Give your money. Go give some clothes and food and stuff to the poor. But none of that will please God, ultimately. Because the problem is not that your good deeds aren't outweighing your bad deeds. The problem is that you have no good deeds to speak of. Even your righteous deeds are in the sight of God as putrid rags. And so John, when he tells these people about true repentance, they start thinking, is this guy the Messiah? There is something different about what he's saying. And in verse 15, they were wondering and asking within themselves and amongst themselves, is this the Messiah we're looking for? And this is the, this is the moment John's been looking for, this entire sermon. This is like his zinger moment. He says, I am baptizing you with water. I'm saying, hey, all I'm doing is dunking you in a lake, and this is a, dem a public demonstration of your changed life. But listen to me carefully. One mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. For John, preparing the way of the Lord meant showing the people their sinfulness and then showing them the solution. There's one coming who is greater than me, whose eloquence cannot be compared to, whose teaching will rock your world, and whose mighty works will demonstrate who he is. And you know what? The lowest slave in society would go up to a dignitary and unfasten his sandals or fasten them as the case may be. That was the lowest menial task. And here's what John says. I'm not even worthy to do that for him. I am not worthy to even be near this one. Why? Because John understands who he is in sight of God. The Messiah who's coming is God and we do not deserve to be in the presence of God. John understands that. But he says, here's what he's going to do. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this is a very complex phrase, and I won't get into all of it, and I'm running out of time, frankly, anyways. But put simply, what I believe he's saying is he's saying there will be a time where your hearts will be transformed and you will be given God's Holy Spirit to help you 
as you demonstrate those fruits of repentance I just talked about. But there are some of you who aren't going to, who are not going to want that. And when he says he will baptize you with fire, some think it to mean at Pentecost, remember when the, the cloven tongues of fire were on people's heads? Some people think that that's what he's referring to, but I don't think it is. I think he's referring to is the fires of judgment. There is one who will come who will give the Holy Spirit to those who repent and who will give the fires of judgment in the lake of fire for those who don't. He is a just God. And what he's going to do is he's coming with his winnowing fan in his hand and he's going to thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. He's going to toss up the wheat into the air and the wheat kernels will fall straight to the ground because they're heavy enough to do that. But the chaff and everything that's extraneous will continue to float in the wind and he'll just blow it away and let the wind carry it away so that what is left is the pure wheat that is necessary for them to eat. And that which is not truly wheat will blow away. John uses this as a picture for what Jesus was going to do with his message and his preaching and his actions and what would be the result of his death and resurrection. There will be some who are given the gospel message and some of them will be like the wheat kernels falling straight to the floor who will receive the gospel message and will embrace it and love it and love God and enjoy God forever. And one day they'll stand in his presence and know that even though they're not worthy to be in his presence, Jesus Christ has made them to become worthy enough to be in his presence again. And they will enjoy the presence of God forever because they believe that message and they truly repented. But there will be others who will not embrace it who will not love Jesus, who will not want anything to do with Christianity or the gospel, and they're going to be like the wind, or the, the chaff in the wind. They'll just blow away into the fires of judgment. John's message, he preached to prepare for the coming of Jesus. And his message emphasized true repentance. And the point he was trying to get across is, you can't truly repent unless your heart is changed. And the message remains the same today. So I finish by asking you this question. Is your heart changed? You can come to church. You can get baptized. You can give money. You can collect baby bottles. You can give food. You can give your tunic. You can be kind. You can be generous. But none of that, none of those actions will please God. The only thing that will please him is when your blackened, sin-stained heart is transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ into a heart that is whiter than snow. And the only way to get that is not by going to church, not by being baptized, not by giving money, not by any of that, but by embracing by faith Jesus alone. And each day waking up and saying, Lord, give me grace to fight my sin today because we're going to fight it every day. True repentance doesn't mean we aren't going to sin because we are. We probably have already sinned even this morning for those of us who are Christians. But true repentance will change. And the life trajectory that you will have will no longer be focused on yourself and your sin that will ultimately lead to your death and destruction and judgment. But we'll turn around and say, yes, Jesus, save me from my sins. I need to be rescued because I can do nothing. That was John's message then. And that is the message of the gospel now. Your only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ 
and him crucified. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the worthy Messiah. You are the righteous judge. You are our coming hope. And so I pray, even now, for those in this room who have yet to believe in Jesus Christ, who have yet to demonstrate a true repentance, a changed heart that can only come by acknowledging our sinfulness to you and our need for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I don't know if anyone in this room knows that they are yet within their sins and have yet to trust Jesus, but if you are in here right now and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, there is hope for you, and that is what the gospel is. It is a gospel of hope because your heart can be changed. Before Jesus, in our sin, we're slaves, but with Jesus, we are set free from sin. If you are wondering how you can be set free from your sin, how you can demonstrate true repentance like John preached 2,000 years ago, then I encourage you to, after the service, come talk to me, come talk to one of our deacons, and just, just find out what the Bible has to say about how you can have a transformed heart. And the short answer is it's through Jesus Christ. And Christian, true repentance will demonstrate results there will be evidence of your changed life. It won't be perfect. You will fail. There will at times be besetting sins that you're going to struggle with and it's going to be hard. But generally speaking, the trajectory of your life will be running towards Jesus. And each step closer is one step closer to the freedom from sin that we will experience when we go to see him one day. So my encouragement to you, Christian, is you've embraced Jesus, you have trusted him. Continue to run your race, continue to look towards Jesus, and continue to cling to him as your hope. Lord, thank you for your word, thank you for the preaching of your prophet, and I pray that even today our hearts would be stirred and transformed because of it. For we ask it in the name of our Savior Jesus, amen.